Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Heaven is under our feet as well as over our heads. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we're starting into the final outer plane in our March of the Modrons. We have finally made it to the twin paradises of Bytopia. Now this is, I like this plan. I have stated my alignment and I would say my alignment generally runs chaotic, neutral, possibly neutral evil on my bad and more vicious days. That said, I like this plane. This would be a good plane to stop and catch your breath. This is probably where I would want to be, honestly, personally. I could see that. Yeah, I mean, I would want to stay here. This is definitely where home base would be, and I would want to travel to the other planes. This will be a great place if you were doing a planescape to set up a hold or something like that. Definitely a place where your party can go and kind of gather yourself. There's plenty to do, but the plane itself is not outright hostile. Again, it can be peaceful largely. It is kind of idyllic. I was joking with Ian going over show notes that this is almost like a libertarian's wet dream type of plane where it's just kind of, <laughs> hey, do your own thing. Don't bother anybody else. Just kind of chill, which I like the whole kind of just chill thing. So this will be a nice breath of fresh air after going through like Gehenna and some of our other places we've been. Yeah, this is a very nice, mellow, friendly plane to round out the whole tour on. We're ending on a high note. This is our soft line. after Gehenna and the last batch yeah this is we need a soft landing (laughs) we're going from a volcanic hellscape to this yeah so let's go ahead and dive on in all right so Bytopia is composed of only two layers it is the plane with the fewest individual layers to it yeah this is nice and simple and the really cool thing about Bytopia is that the layers are visible from one another at all times because all you have to do is look up because one layer is basically upside down facing the other layer. There's about a one mile gap between sea level, quote unquote, on both the top and the bottom. You still have a day night cycle and there is still the light from some sort of a sun like thing that lights up the plane during the day. But at nighttime, when you look up and you see the quote unquote stars in the sky, it's actually just like campfires and such from the settlements on the other layer just shining down at you. Now, while I like that, I will say if your characters are on this plane trying to do astral navigation on like some sort of sea campaign, that's really going to (laughs) suck. So I say some weird sun thing. According to second edition lore. What is supposed to be the sun in Bytopia is what remains of the divine realm of the god from the Vedic slash Indian pantheon, god slash goddess. They're very gender fluid, Savitri. And the tale is that Savitri was a god that a god or goddess. I'm just going to use god as a gender neutral term, a divine entity term. Yeah. With that, again, as an editorial note, generally when you speak of something, everyone tends to be a little egocentric and put themselves into whatever they're imagining. And if you've not noticed, both Ian and I tend to uh, identify as masculine. So if you hear that, that is our default, because again, it is that center of immersion, I I guess you would say. Well, I mean, it also defaulted. Granted, these are second edition books. I think it came out in 93 or 94. So it's not exactly an enlightened time. This is also true. But the book did also default to Savitri 
the god and mentioned that in some stories, Savitri is portrayed as a feminine entity as opposed to a masculine entity. So it's one of those things. Yeah, it's a little complex. We like it. (laughs) But supposedly the story behind Savitri is that they decided that they were going to marry for love rather than marry for wealth, which, you know, given ruling classes in general in medieval and pre-medieval societies was an interesting you know, would be quite the scandal. Yes, it would. Especially whenever the person that they choose to marry is basically a penniless hermit. Right. So Savitri falls in love. They get married. A year later, their spouse dies. And when Yama, the god of death, shows up to collect their spouse and carry them off into the afterlife, Savitri followed Yama and basically pestered Yama and said, hey, 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 like Navi from, was it uh, Ocarina of Time? Yes. Hey, listen. Hey, hey. Basically poked Yama until Yama just said, fine, I give up. Restored their spouse to life and, you know, ta-da. The moral of the story, if you can annoy a god enough, you'll get whatever you want. Well, if you are a god... And you can pester a god as much <laughs> as you want. Eventually, you'll get what you want. No, no, no. Um, I'm going with my original statement. That, that's the message we're sending <laughs> home. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but it's supposed to be a story that displays the power of love and devotion. And per second edition lore, Savitri now lives in Elysium. I don't know why this story required them to give up their divine realm in Bytopia, but for whatever reason, they are now in Elysium and not in Bytopia. It's because TSR got confused. I mean, let's just go ahead. They were trying to put all the gods in one place for a while. And again, the gods just kind of like, they threw them in a box and shook them up and dumped them out. And it's like, okay, they landed there. Sure. Good. (laughs) So I'm going to guess that Savitri is now considered an aspect of Pelor because Pelor is the sun god at the bottom of Elysium. But Savitri still returns to Bytopia every dawn to maintain their realm and bring daylight to Bytopia. So why they couldn't just decide to stay there and do that locally, I can't tell you. I kind of like that. I like the aspects of God too. And I think this would be like probably a whole edition wide or multiple edition wide. And it would be so touchy that never in a million years would wizards touch this. But if there was a God that tried to consume the other God as aspects for a push of monotheism, I think would be a really interesting story arc, even for a fantasy novel or a fantasy series of some type. I think that would be really interesting. And I have no idea how you'd work that out without offending everybody, but there's potential there. So yeah, I can see that because the way that the D&D pantheons are built out, so many of them start as just a few gods and then gradually portfolios start getting divided up and the pantheon grows, right? right. And I mean, and you see that too with like even the Greco-Roman pantheon, you started off with you know, you start off with the Titans and then they get overthrown by Zeus and Poseidon and Hades. Right. And so you have a small, finite number of gods starting off. And then those gods start to have kids yes. and their children are also gods. So they have to have their domains. They have to have their portfolios. And so it starts to get diluted. And I can definitely see a sort of story where one of these gods is just real upset about the piddly little portfolio that they have or maybe they lost something and they decide that they are going to take it upon themselves to 
consolidate some of these portfolios and in doing so starts gaining more power and starts really butting heads severely with other gods because let's be honest there's only one real surefire way to consolidate a portfolio among a set of gods you eat them right (laughs) yeah right yeah and so once you get a god that starts basically cannibalizing other gods to gain their power there's going to be a certain amount of backlash because they don't want to also be cannibalized. Absolutely. (laughs) I love this. So our writers, there you go. There's a wonderful writing prompt. I would add one more flavor possibly to this, make it some sort of galactic, like we have the ever expanding universe. We have the big bang and everything comes out. And then, you know, mathematically it's not going to happen, but people talk about the big crunch. What if the same thing happens with pantheons that once it hits a certain size, like you say, you get this God that's upset with his small realm, or maybe he lost a piece of his realm. And so it is this, cosmic cycle that eventually all the gods will coalesce back into one and then back out and you could do a whole you know wheel of time all of this has happened before and will happen again type thing too you hit a critical mass of divinity yes yes i love it <laughs> and then it starts to coalesce again okay we definitely have to put a pin in this as a we, we should probably <laughs> should do a full episode on this cosmology because i freaking love it but it has nothing to do with bytopia <laughs> it has nothing to do with bytopia that's right So getting back to Bytopia, because that's what we're talking about today. That's right. (laughs) The days stay the same year round. They don't get longer and shorter like they do on our world, but it does still go through the seasons. So you still have a hot summer, you still have a cold winter, and so on and so forth. And both layers have the same season at the same time. On the quote unquote tame layer the first layer of Dotheon, the weather's always fairly mild. It doesn't get too hot in the summer. It doesn't get too cold in the winter. But by comparison, the other layer, Shurok, has much more volatile weather because the elements are much more pronounced. It's a much more savage sort of plane. I like that. And this kind of leads to, again, as we've talked about different pantheons and theologies, and it looks like it's just going to be that kind of episode. Because it, again, this is a, a paradise. But going back and talking about, you know, some of the earlier religions between the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, this is a paradise. And so things are going to be very even, very predictable, which leads to that feeling of comfort versus something like Gehenna, where you have something that's insufferably hot, and then the next layer is insufferably cold and insufferably windy. And so, again, everything here is very mild and very gentle. And that does bring that feeling of peace and comfort and goodness. And again, this is typically a good, plain, lawful, neutral, lawful, good, somewhere in there. So it does bring that easy feeling. So even where things are volatile and things are natural, they are not catastrophically so. Yeah. And the basic breakdown between the two layers, Dotheon is the tamed layer. It's where all of the artisans are. It's where all the craftsmen are. It's all the farmers and stuff are. It's the pastoral half. And then Shurok is where all of the resources are. So it's the very wild thing. It's where you go. If you're a carpenter and you need a log to mill into lumber for a project, you go to Shurok, you find a tree, you cut it down, you bring it home, you mill it, and you make your project. If you're a smith and you need metal to work, you go to Shurok to get your ore. It's that sort of a dichotomy. It's Shurok is the ingredients and Dotheon is the kitchen. Yeah, it is the source of ever-present natural resources. It's very much the pantry, I think, is kind of what, what you were yeah. doing in that case. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that'll work. <laughs> yeah. And I like this too. And again, this does a lot because the place where people are going to live is not going to be, it can be focused on housing. It can be nice. Therefore, you're not going to have like, you know, a slag pit next to your house. You're not going to have like a tanner's pit or, you know, a giant mine that someone's dug out. It can be laid out. It can be even, it can be orderly. And then you can just go to where you're going to get your resources and those are going to regenerate because again, this is a good plane. So that natural growth is going to be increased a bit. And so you're not going to tear down the environment, which is also a nice little bonus to have in life. Yeah. And as I have mentioned, the two layers are separated by about a mile of sky, but there are numerous mountain ranges throughout the plane. It's relatively easy to get through because you can climb that mountains, you can go back and forth. Something as a DM I would do just because I love old pulp sci-fi, I would absolutely have artificers running like a space elevator ferry between the two planes that for a certain amount, you can just kind of like from one town to another where they've hooked a cable so you can trolley between the two because that would work perfect on this plane. Again, the gravity always points down. And so you, you climb the mountain, it's down until you hit that switching point and then you're down to the next plane. So theoretically, you could climb a, the highest peak of one plane and then kind of jump to the highest peak of the next and you'd reorient. If you could fly or teleport, these would be options as well. So a cable or a rope that connected both planes would be perfectly feasible, especially if you could just anchor them down so they didn't float. I would yeah. totally have that artificer NPC running a ferry. Absolutely, yeah. And there are some of these mountains that are tall enough to where the peaks actually touch. Right. So it is kind of almost like a column connecting the two layers. And there is a demarcation point precisely halfway between the two where gravity inverts. And the first time you go through it, you have to make a dexterity or a reflex check, depending on your addition, to avoid getting disoriented and tumbling down the mountain. But it does say that after your first success, you don't have to make that check anymore because it is sort of disorienting the first time you do it. Um, yeah, I could see another thing you could do is you could set up some sort of like off time or downtime mini game that maybe there's something set up exactly on this point And it's like some sort of like maybe like a sumo contest or a wrestling or a jousting thing. And to determine which side, you know, a rooster lays an egg on the top of a barn, which side does it fall off on that kind of thing. So maybe roosters don't sport. lay eggs, James. Exactly. That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> but you could have some sort of thing maybe to try to toss your opponent or pull your opponent to your side or to see what side they would land on to that kind of thing. But you could really play with this gravity thing because again, things aren't so harsh. So this definitely could be something as a DM you could kind of tinker with and play with as just kind of a for funsies. But it also suggests that there would be a way if you were careful enough that you could suspend yourself to where exactly half of your body was on either side of this demarcation point and you could just float in space. Yes. Now, again, because this is a good plan, you float and you're not ripped in half. Yes. <laughs> you are not bisected. <laughs> so the temperament, the general atmosphere of the plane is that everyone is expected to pull their own weight, but otherwise you're left to your own devices. You're expected to do what you can to take care of yourself. If someone asks you for help, you're expected to help them, but you're never expected to go and volunteer your help to someone else. Right. And that's kind of where I got this feeling. Like I said, this would be very much an ideal place for something like the time of enlightenment. Again, Hobbes, Locke, uh, you know, we brought up Thoreau, who kind of just has that you know perfect nature, which less so on that. But again, it is very much the individual taking care of oneself. You know, you're supposed to help the community, but you're not 
obligated to. Again, this is a fairly relaxed, peaceful place to be. Help is available. I think it would be less so to people that tried to exploit it. But again, that's just, it's the general goodness of the plane. But it is explicit in the books that you don't get a handout. Right. You don't get to play the privilege card and expect other people to do the work for you. Correct. In the Planescape book that Bytopia is in, there is a quote where an innkeeper is talking to a prince from the material plane. And the prince is trying to explain that he's a prince and princes don't work. And the innkeeper is telling him, well, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yes. Everyone is expected to pull their weight. Yeah. Whatever that weight happens to be. And so, like I said, I generally like this plane. And this would be a good plane to have your home base. You can definitely visit some of these other ones, but I would probably set up camp here. And running a little bit counter to what some of the other planes have, there are portals here that lead to other planes, but they are all very clearly marked. You don't have to guess where that's going to. You don't have to go through all sorts of esoteric lore to try and locate the portal. Right. Or like fight some sort of army guarding it or anything like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want to go to Mount Celestia. Well, you need to go and find one of these caves over here that has a bunch of concentric circles over the top of it. So for our younger viewers, once upon a time, there was these large indoor complexes that had a bunch of little stores called a mall. And these malls would have at these large intersections where people would walk a sign called a directory. And it would have a point that said, you are here. And then you could figure out where in the mall you go. It was a nice little map. That is pretty much how these things would be here. You'd be in Elysium, and I'm sure like the ends have like this way to the portal to blah, this way to that. It, it would be very much laid out, very open again. And it has to do with that general helpfulness and ease of the plane. Yeah. So the portals within Bytopia go to the neighboring planes of Elysium and Mount Celestia, as well as to the Outlands, which is the true neutral hub of the outer planes. It sort of sits in the middle with all of the other planes in a ring around it. So as I mentioned, the caves that have the portals to Mount Celestia have a series of concentric circles to symbolize these seven layers of the mountain of Mount Celestia. Okay. Elysium has a series of radiating lines symbolizing the sun because Palor, the sun god, is at the bottom of Elysium. Makes sense. And then... If you're looking for a portal to the Outlands, you look for one that has a spiderweb pattern. Because again, the Outlands is at the center with all of these radiating connections to all of the other planes around it. Exactly. So please follow the guided lights to your preferred exit. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about magic and Bytopia. Let's do it. Magic in Bytopia is by far the most straightforward of all of the outer planes. There is the fewest little changes to Magic and Bytopia compared to everything else. There really aren't very many changes in general. All of the changes that do exist, with a couple of very minor exceptions, affect all magic on both planes. So you don't have things like in Gehenna where... Fire magic is enhanced on these layers, and then on those layers, it doesn't work at all because they're frozen and dead. You don't have to worry about that. It's the same all the way through. Nice and balanced. I like it. All right. So first off, conjuration and summoning magic. You can only summon items or creatures that are already found within Bytopia. So the example that is given in the book is you can't cast Evard's black tentacles because there aren't any black tentacles in Bytopia. 
Okay, no hentai in Bytopia. Okay, I'm out. You lost me. (laughs) (laughs) They do also note that this is a plane of artisans and craftsmen, but not one of mechanized machinery. So things that would conjure items. You can conjure certain items, but not others. You're not going to find a whole lot of constructs and golems here. No. And this right here would probably put a bit of a damper on the whole fairy idea with the artificers. I think it would still be possible. You might see one or two, but it's not going to be a whole lot of them. This would be still a, a fairly rare thing to to come across. Um, well, I mean... Unless it was just a straight pulley system, in which case that could work too. Absolutely. And I haven't gotten to this part yet, but because it's primarily populated with gnomes. Oh, well, yeah. Of course so- <laughs> So, of course, there's going to be artificers here. <laughs> but again, it's how complex of the items they are making is going to be limited as far as machinery goes. Again, because it's not mechana. So it's not like a full-on industrial revolution. It, it's no. got toys and curiosities. It's going to be Renaissance-era technology, not industrial revolution-era technology. I like it. There's going to probably be some early steam power, not steam powered, but uh, like water wheel and windmill powered stuff. I could see that. Yeah. Probably not steam powered. Yeah. You're not going to be able to really run a steampunk campaign here. I mean, if you really want to DM's choice, but per the lore, this is not the plane. No, that would be Mechanus. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, they're all cogs. Exactly. It's built for you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's begging for you. It's in the name and everything. Yeah. The clockwork nirvana of Mechanus. Anyway, <laughs> next up is divination spells. All divination spells work completely normally within Bytopia, but they require the inclusion of elements or objects of the plane to function properly. So the examples that they give were for the clairvoyance spell, you would need to use a reflective surface like the surface of a pond or a mirror crafted in Bytopia. Okay. Whereas if you're wanting to use something like clear audience to overhear a conversation that an NPC is having and they're standing over next to a tree as part of the spell, you'd have to put your ear up against another tree. Okay. I mean, that all makes sense. And again, it ties everything to the realm. That's nothing too crazy or too hard to imagine. No, it isn't. And that also allows you to get sort of creative with how are you going to include the plane in this spell? Right. No, I like that a lot. And I think as a DM, I would almost want to extend that to all spell components. But again, that would be DM's choice. Okay, next up, necromancy. This is my perennial reminder that (laughs) healing spells used to be classified as necromancy and not evocation. And I think that they should be. Yes. For necromancy spells in Bytopia, life-sustaining spells are enhanced. So healing spells heal more. Restoration spells restore better. That sort of thing. If you're playing a game where you are having a percentage chance for your resurrection spells to work then you would increase that percentage chance. Damaging or killing spells are diminished. So the damaging spells are going to do less damage. Targets are going to get advantage on saving throws against death spells, that sort of thing. And again, because the innate temperament of this plane is to promote life and goodness. As we've said multiply, this is a great place to stop and lick your wounds, take your rests, Fill up some stuff, maybe resurrect an old dead friend who, who died in the dragon's cave, whatever that is. This is a good place for that. Yeah. All right. And then the last one is elemental spells. Most of these would fall under evocation 
or transmutation in fifth edition. Spells that have wide ranging effects, such as control weather, the part water spell from second edition, which has since become control water or move earth require a successful caster check. So you'd have a set DC and you roll, add your spellcasting modifier and your proficiency bonus, and you have to hit above that DC. If you don't hit that, the spell fizzles. For this, I would say that the spellcasting check, because I don't think, I've not seen anything hardcore for what this would be. I would call it double the spell level for your DC. So like if you're casting a cantrip, it'd be a two, a level one would be a two, um, a level two spell would be a four, etc. Um, In third edition, the DC would have been 10 plus the spells level. Okay. Which would make it a DC 10 for a cantrip, 11 for a first level on up to a DC 19 for a ninth level spell. Yeah, I mean, that works out. My way would make the spells easier and they would top out at an 18 instead of a 19. So it does balance close-ish. Definitely more easy for the the lighter spells, but either way. But otherwise, elemental spells function normally on Dothian, the Tame Plane, and they're enhanced on Shurok because the elements are more visceral. They're more present in Shurok. I like it. And that's it. That's all of the magic effects. That's everything magical that is different. Have we mentioned this plane is calm and easy. It's wonderful. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We should have started here. (laughs) Yeah. Again, this was our soft landing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Moving along to the gods present in Bytopia. They're a bit numerous. Uh, They are, but most of them fall under a single pantheon. Yes. So the most prominent pantheon and deity in Bytopia is the gnomish pantheon <sighs> behind Garl Glittergold. I'm liking this plane less and less. <laughs> in fact, starting with third edition, they're the only gods listed as being in Bytopia because they removed all of the pantheons that were equivalent to actual real world mythology pantheons from baseline third edition. They did add them back in, in the deities and demigods book. I did not take time to go through the deities and demigods book and pick through all of them because they're not organized by what plane they're on. They're organized by Pantheon. So I did not go to confirm whether they were still there. Okay. But the other gods within the gnomish pantheon that are listed in second edition in third edition they are not listed as being gods they are called quote able assistants to garl glittergold saying that garl is the only god of the gnomes and all of these others are like i i guess like demigods or you know assistant to the branch manager yeah (laughs) these are all dwight (laughs) yeah they're all dwight and they're all gnomes so they all would be dwight oh my god less and less (laughs) less and less okay that's it i'm moving screw this plan i'm out (laughs) that's why i'm gonna live here is because then i don't have to worry about james coming and visit me (laughs) yeah i see how it is (laughs) (laughs) okay anyway so the first god is Nebulun, the god of invention and discovery. There's some debate between editions whether Nebulun is an aspect of the Faerunian god Gond, who is a god of invention. We mentioned he's in the library in the Beastlands, where Hephaestus is, where we were like, you're walking through the Beastlands and all of a sudden you're in a library. Right. I remember the library. I'm blanking on the details of it right now because but, it's just been that kind of day. I know this because my orc forge cleric is a cleric of Gond because of the connection to Nebulun. So there are some sources that say that Nebulun is just 
the gnomish name for Gond. There are others that claim that they are separate deities. So, And I could see this as being the aspect of the same god and flipping back and forth, kind of like Severti does between um, Pelor and, and here, or Ethere, uh, Elysium, and, Elysium here. and here, right. So, I mean, that is very probable. And it also kind of goes back into that possible one day of like merging of other gods, particularly where you have Glare Goldger doing his thing where, no, no, you guys are just, yeah, you're not quite gods. No, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, so I could definitely see that. And I think that it is actually officially canon that the gods, whenever you go into a different pantheon for like a different world, the gods are the same. They just present a different aspect to that world. Yeah. Um, That's why Bahamut is still Bahamut wherever he happens to go, right. whether it's in Dragonlance or whether it's in Forgotten Realms. It's still the Platinum Dragon. It's just that he's called different things in different places. So what this reminds me of in Avatar The Last Airbender, when they're in the city that's right underneath the foundry, they've got the one old guy that has like all the different positions and he's like playing someone different each time he pops up. It'd be kind of like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, getting back on topic. The other gods we've got are Bervon Wildwander, who's a god of the forests. Baravar Cloak Shadow, God of Illusion and Deception. Because that's not confusing at all. Well. Between Baravan and Baravar. <laughs> well, so. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Flandal Steelskin, God of Metalsmiths. Gerdal Iron Hand, God of War, listed as the Gnome's Battle General. Kind of an awesome name. Sigajan Earthcaller, the God of Agriculture. Kalardaran Smooth Hands, God of the Svirfneblin. Yes, the Deep Gnomes have their own God, God in yes. this pantheon. And then the only evil god in the Gnomish pantheon, Erdlin the Greedy, who is apparently living somewhere deep under the mountains in Shirok. Interesting. Yeah, there's an evil god living deep under the mountains in Shirok. Okay. Doing whatever it is that he does. Giving the good god something to do. He's making busy work, you know? You gotta have a reason to exercise power. He's doing his thing. He serves as an instrument of chaos. Now, in the third edition book, Though they are not listed as being gods, all of these lesser and intermediary gods, it does give you a sidebar that says, you know, you can make these gods if you want to. Yes. It's like, really, guys, you go and demote them and then give me the option of making them gods again. Well, they didn't want to piss them off. They wanted to give the option. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be some smiting to the writers. I mean, you don't just go and piss off gods willy nilly. It's like the people who demoted Pluto. Exactly. Gestures at everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Some of the other gods that happen to be here that are not in the Gnomish Pantheon. You've got Elmater, the Broken God from Forgotten Realms. He's a god of protection and martyrdom. Basically, the way I understand it is he has taken on all of the afflictions of the world. So he has a broken body. It's constantly covered in sores. He's constantly racked with pain, but he is taking it on so that other people don't have to suffer it. This is very much a god you would find in like Dark Souls or something like that. In the Drist novels, and I, I believe those are... Those are Forgotten Realms, yes. Those are Forgotten Realms, yes. There is a band of monks, a religious order, that they go on and take on suffering of people because their religious order in the books believe that there can only be so much suffering in the world. And so by taking it on themselves, they are in fact taking that suffering away from someone else. And Ilmater would definitely be a patron of that group. The next one is Kiri Jolith, the dragon lance god of war and justice and the patron of the Knights of Solemnia. Very nice. He is kind of part of a problem later on. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Next one is Tefnut, 
the Egyptian slash Mulharandi goddess of rain, storms, and running water. A good one to have. And then we've got, I think that there are a couple. I'm not sure. It wasn't real clear on this. Amatsumara and Inari, who are two Japanese deities. One of them is a god of blacksmithing and one is of rice. That is a good pair to have. I mean, if you're going to pick two, those are way up there. Yeah. I like it. And I apologize if I misgendered them because I literally have no idea who these deities are. We are not fluent in Japanese. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. Yeah, we're just going to leave it at that. Yeah. (laughs) And then the final individual that I wanted to talk about is the Titan Epimetheus, who is the brother of Prometheus. So according to Greek mythology, Epimetheus was tasked with granting a beneficial trait to all of the creatures of the world, but he lacked foresight to hold things back. And so by the time he reached humans at the end of his travels, he'd run out of things to give them. Oops. Which resulted in Prometheus stealing fire and civilization from the gods, which resulted in his punishment being chained to a cliff and having an eagle come by and rip out his liver every day. Epimetheus in another story is also the figure who accepted the gift of Pandora from the gods. And it is implied in some stories that he married Pandora, but it's never explicitly stated. Gotcha. Though it would make sense. Though Epimetheus and Pandora have a daughter together who is Pyrrha, and she and her husband slash distant cousin Deucalion, who is a descendant of Prometheus, were the only two humans to survive the deluge. Now, Deucalion was actually my WoW tag name and gamer name for about 10 or 12 years. So that's... And so in Biotopia, he just sort of wanders around doing his own thing, accidentally creating mayhem and generally getting himself into trouble due to lack of foresight. As you do. He's kind of a Mr. Magoo. He is. No meaning, just kind of bumbling (laughs) along. Yeah. And as we've mentioned before, if there's gods here, there's going to be proxies here. Absolutely. Because all of the gods have their proxies because they all need somebody to do their dirty work. That's right. What's the point of having power if you can't flex it? The most notable proxies listed in the book are Gemma Feldspar, who is a proxy of Girl Glittergold, and her husband, Zarbin Flamehair, who is a proxy of Flandel Steelskin. So that's the the god of treasure and the god of metalworking. Their proxies are married to each other. And supposedly they have been married for over a century and have more than 30 children. Very nice. And again, a hit tap to the authors. Gemma Feldspar for, you know, a gnomish proxy is a great freaking name. (laughs) It is, especially for Garl, because he's all about precious stones and precious metals. So there aren't very many proxies that are listed that exist outside of the gnomish pantheon, primarily because there aren't many gods in this plane outside of the Gnomish Pantheon. The ones that are mentioned are Felina the Clawed, who is a proxy of Tefnut. She's got that Mediterranean olive skin, but the head of a Siamese cat. I was right there until it went furry. (laughs) I don't know why they decided Siamese cat. Yeah, that's a little odd too. You know, because it is a proxy of an Egyptian god. Why not use the Sphinx cat? Exactly. Use an Egyptian cat subspecies, you know? Uh, Yeah, I've got nothing. I've got nothing on that one. (laughs) I think it's because they didn't want the wrinkly naked head. I don't know. Fair enough. Then you've got Amanthurus the Beneficent, who is a proxy of Ilmater. And he basically just bounces from plane to plane doing his god's bidding. Because Ilmater's busy hurting. 
Yeah, he, he's he's not very mobile. He he's the. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to make it sound like I'm making light of chronic pain and chronic fatigue, but he is the god of chronic fatigue and chronic pain. No, I, and I totally get that. And I mean, as someone with issues like that, there are days where you just can't leave the house because your body's like, nope, screw it. You're out of spoons and you're out of fucks and you have neither. And there are very much days like that. And so. Yeah, sometimes you need someone who can help you get stuff done when you need stuff to get done. The field is barren and the drawer is empty. Yes. <laughs> so that's whenever you start resorting to fork theory, which is you have so many forks within your person and you have to decide which ones hurt the most. So you have to prioritize which ones you remove first. Yes. Anyway, let's get away from this. This is getting very... Uh, yeah, this is a happy plane. Happy. This thoughts. is a happy plane. Happy we're, get, we're, we're thinking happy thoughts. <laughs> and then the last one listed is Sargentus Golden Hilt. Sargentus, they make really good cheese. He was a proxy of Kiri Jolith. He was a knight of Solemnia, and he was plucked from Kryn prior to his death to serve his god as the chief instructor at the heart of justice within his realm. That's... I mean, kind of doing the whole Elijah Enoch thing. I mean, that is a nice tip of a hat. I like it. So for petitioners here in Bytopia, unless they are specifically within the realm of a non-gnomish god, they're probably going to be a gnome. Less and less. (laughs) Third edition even goes so far to state that every petitioner here is a gnome, whether they were a gnome in life or not. And I'm out. (laughs) And unlike in the Beastlands... The creatures here are not petitioners. They're just creatures. Some of them are celestial versions of creatures. Some of them are giant versions of creatures. But they're all just the outer plane version of their material plane counterpart. There's nothing special about them. And that keeps it nice and easy. Yeah. Okay. Moving right along. Next up is the factions in Bytopia. There are multiple factions that have a presence here. Because it is such a nice, easy place to get to and to work in, there are multiple factions that are working on projects here. The first one that was mentioned are the Cyphers. They have taken to Epimetheus. They see his happy-go-lucky lifestyle as the epitome of the sort of mindless action, rely on your gut instinct, that they're trying to achieve. Again, this falls somewhere between like Epicureanism and hedonism, just kind of that, you know, the best good is avoiding discomfort and pain. And so what is that? And that's not necessarily like, you know, pure hedonism where whatever feels good now, because there is a point of putting off a little bit or a little bit of delayed gratification. But still, if you follow any of those Greek philosophies, it very much would embrace a balance of these two. Yeah, Basically what the ciphers are all about is action without thought. Yeah, it's like getting to a point where you instinctively know the right thing to do and you just do it without thinking about it. Because whenever you start thinking about it, you have a chance to doubt and second guess yourself. I can get that. That's what they're trying to do. And so because Epimetheus completely lacks any forethought, (laughs) he has no ability to see the repercussions of his actions before he acts. They see him as the epitome of what they can achieve. He is the poster child for what they're trying to do. Not the best poster to have, but you do you. (laughs) I mean, they're not 20 foot tall Titans. So this is also true. They can get into less trouble than him. (laughs) This is also very, very true. (laughs) Um, The other faction that has a very substantial hold here 
is the Order of the Plains Militant, also called the Brethren or the Faithful. Their primary sphere of influence is Mount Celestia, and they're starting to branch out into Bitopia. On the surface, they seem to just be recruiting to the faction to gain warriors to fight against chaos and evil, primarily for sorties into Akron. Secretly, though, and this is where it starts to get nefarious, because you have to have something nefarious even in Paradise. Yep. They are hoping to shift the balance in Bitopia, much of the same way that the Harmonium accidentally did in Arcadia, to subsume Bitopia into Mount Celestia. Those bastards. So this whole plan was concocted by a wizard within the faction called Indigo the Stutterer, who has a tower on the first layer of Mount Celestia. We talked about that, like, forever ago and this is why i will never ever be like a famous person in D because i don't want to know what i mean i would probably be a wizard or an artificer but with the tourettes i don't want to know what kind of tag they're going to put on me so just know <laughs> just know <laughs> but uh he is an exceptionally powerful wizard as in the second edition stats he is a 22nd level wizard he is as wizard as you can get without being a dragon yeah pretty much so the locals in Bytopia are starting to catch on that there's more than just a simple recruiting drive going on, and they ain't too pleased about it. And right. they're starting to get openly hostile towards the recruiters for the Order of Plains Militant. Like, no, no, no. You got something cooking up, and we we may not know what it is, but we don't like it, and you're not welcome here. Now, uh, again, as a huge overarching shift, it would be really interesting if the Order of the Plains Militant trying to shift towards Mount Celestia created enough of a backlash and enough hostility that they actually shift the plane the other direction, which I don't know where I would wind up landing that way, but that would be kind of a fun twist to throw. Yeah, I don't know. I I really don't know. That would be an interesting thought experiment to try and figure out. Um, Anyway. I broke in. I'm sorry. Yeah, you you got me pondering. Uh, (laughs) So this is where Kiri Jolith comes in, because Kiri Jolith, he is a lawful good god of war and valor, and he has become the faction's greatest ally within Bytopia. And they're using his realm as a foothold to operate out of. And I can see that. And as you look, if you've read the Cairn novels and the Dragonlance novels, the Knights of Solemnia have their reputation, we will politely say, has been tarnished. And so this also fits fairly well with Kindrolith that, you know, he's got these great ideals, but execution, not necessarily the best. Well-meaning, kind of screws stuff up. (laughs) So the Order of Plains Militant, their allies within the factions from Sigil are the Harmonium and the Governors. And this enterprise has started to strain relationships between these two factions, especially with the Harmonium, because the Harmonium blames the Brethren, blames the Order for the shift of that third layer of Arcadia into Mechanus. Gotcha. It's all misdirection away from their re-education camps. Right. But they openly blame the Order of Plains Militant for the shift of that layer into Mechanus. Yeah, you could do so much with this. I mean, right here, this is where a lot of your story hooks are going to lie. All kinds of stuff you can run with this. And there is another source book from Planescape that I happen to have that I haven't perused extensively yet called The Factolds Manifesto, which goes into detail on each of the factions within Sigil and who's allied with whom, who's enemies with whom, what that relationship looks like on each of these, and uh, just fleshing out the whole tangled mess of what's going on between all these factions. That would be a great book to have. So the other faction here, the Governors, 
they are the lawful neutral faction. They are the faction that is basing their operations out of Mechanus. Um, they seem to be aware of the plan that the Order has to try and shift Bytopia into Mount Celestia. They see it. They know that it can work because they are currently fighting the Harmonium to keep that layer in Mechanus. Okay. They're fighting alongside the Modrons to keep that layer as a cog in Mechanus. But whatever their plan is, because they always have a plan, they are the rules lawyers. They go through and they hunt for any potential loophole, any legalese out that they can get, any hook they can set to gain an advantage using the legal system. Gotcha. This is where you're going to get our pettit bards. But yeah, absolutely. I could see a whole school being based from these guys would be perfect. Yeah. And whatever their plan happens to be, they're probably waiting to see if the order can pull it off. And if they're successful, then their plan is going to go into motion. Okay. No, that's fair. Again, wait and see is a perfectly good strategy. Well, we have gone way quicker through Bytopia than we normally do. Because there's not nearly as much here. It is a very simple plane. It is a very simple plane that is very calm, with the exception of a few of these factions. Conflict is fairly low. Again, this is a place where you're going to stick your feet in the pool, you're going to take a deep breath, you know, walk around Willy Wonka, get that giant gummy bear that I still want, you know, that three foot, four foot <laughs> gummy bear, just chewing its head. Right. All right. So, last section. Let's go ahead and just knock it out. The creatures that you're going to find here in Bytopia. The big ones are going to be Archons, Asimon, which are your angels, and Celestial Eladrin. They're all commonly found here. Again, it's a celestial paradise type thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Another common creature here are the Holyfonts. I still don't know if I like these or not. They kind of creep me out. They're kind of awesome. Kind of cute. I don't know. These really confuse me. If you don't know what a Holyfont is, they're small flying golden psionic elephants. They're basically the little pink elephants you see when you're drunk. <laughs> and the gnomish powers, the gnomish pantheon, used the holyfonts as a sort of messenger service. So now I'm picturing a holyfont with like a little DHL logo, yes, uniform with the little hat <laughs> and a little messenger bag with letters in it, just knocking on your door with its trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it doesn't even need to knock on the door. It's just going to psionically. It's just going to bam in. No, it's it's. They have manners. Okay, fair enough. They're just going to stand at the door and uh, reach out to you and tell you that they're there and they have a package for you. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if I like these. That kind of creep me out just a little bit. Another creature found here are the Baku, and we talked about the Baku a bit whenever we were covering Elysium, but that was so long ago. I'm going to briefly cover them again. They are sapient elephant-like creatures who can and do wield weapons with their stumpy trunks. So their trunks are shorter than a normal elephant's, and they will pick up a mace and smack somebody with it. While being followed by like a small fleet of holyfonts. <laughs> they are capable of speech, and they can shapeshift into a humanoid form. Okay. That's the high points of what the Baku are. Kind of weird, but okay. Again, they've got a whole elephant thing going on. I'll hang with it. All right. Now to the two monsters that are present in second edition books that I wasn't able to find later on. And they're both kind of really cool. Yeah. The first one is the Ethic, E-T-H-Y-K. They're basically a Cyclopean lemur with the ability to make other people really aggressive. They like to um, move it, move it. They do like to move it, move it. <laughs> and 
they have exceptionally keen sight and hearing, which means that they can never be surprised. That is one of the details from their stat block is that you can't surprise an ethic. Fair enough. Now, six times a day, it can target a creature within 100 feet of it. And that creature must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or become angry and argumentative towards another random creature who is not an ethic within 100 feet for 3d4 rounds. Okay. It is specific that it will not become angry towards the ethic who is affecting it or any other ethic that might happen to be around. It's going to be some other creature in its party. Okay. The target might be aware that the ethic is messing with its mind, but it still won't direct any of its aggression towards the ethic until the effect wears off. Good deal. And then each round, the affected creature rolls a d20 and has to roll their wisdom score or lower, or they lash out against the target of their aggression or anyone who tries to hinder or restrain them with a physical attack. This chaos, I love it. This kind of reminds me of the uh, Bruja in Vampire yeah. the Masquerade, where they can channel their rage and direct it to a, another vampiric member. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Except that, you know, the ethic are doing this as a self-preservation method. Correct. You know, they're doing this as a way to... Redirect. Redirect the thing that wants to eat them so that yeah. they can get away. Even if the creature succeeds on that d20 roll, they become stubborn and argumentative towards their random target, contradicting and challenging every point that they make. I like it. This is me on a normal day. What are you talking about? And if they know the target creature, they will dredge up old arguments or open old emotional wounds. Ooh, I love it. They get salty. Oh, they get super salty. Oh, I love this. And the ethic usually uses this infighting as a distraction to slip away to safety. So there actually is a trade for ethic trapping in Bytopia. So there are people who will go out and set traps out in the woods and catch these ethics. And they'll take them and sell them. There are merchants who trade almost exclusively in these creatures. And they've been known to take them to other planes. They're very common to take to Sigil and sell in Sigil. Apparently there is a batch of them that got loose. And so now there is actually a wild ethic population in Sigil. Nice. I love it. And ethics make excellent pets as they're the sort of thing that will bond with any creature that they view as being obviously superior. And as a result, they domesticate very quickly. I like this. And I was going to say, this is something when we've done our create a creature with our guest host and whenever there is, you know, an economic reason to hunt or harvest the monsters that we have, because that is one of the roles we have. We haven't considered maybe they're trapping them as pets, which would actually be a pretty good reason to do such. Yeah, I like it. I don't think we've had anything, at least nothing recently, that would have made a good pet. Well, most of our monsters turn into nightmare fuel. I, I, will, I will admit <laughs> that. But that could be a I mean, people keep like monitors as pets. Why not? Yeah. I suppose. Once they're domesticated, when they use their induce anger ability, they will exclude their masters as possible targets for the victim's ire, as if they were another ethic. So you never have to worry about your pet ethic redirecting that thug's anger towards you. As far as you know. (laughs) And they ride around on their master's shoulders, kind of like trained monkeys and they can be trained to do anything that a monkey can be trained for such as retrieving small items tying simple knots attacking a foe on command you can basically sick them on somebody yeah and this brings up a really good point these ethics are great for merchants to have as pets and i mean we've all in corporate america have heard of ethics training Mm -hmm. there you go 
<laughs> I was about a third of the way through my notes for the ethic whenever that clicked. I was like, ah, <laughs> ah, I see what you did here. <laughs> but yeah, they're great. They're fairly low CR. I mean, if I would translate the stats from the book, I'd say they'd probably be about a CR2. Yeah. CR2, CR3, maybe. They're not terribly combat strong. Their whole thing is, you know, removing themselves from combat. Right. And evasion is a perfectly acceptable strategy. All right. And because we have to have something that's nightmare fuel in every plane. Of course. We have the other creature that we're going to talk about tonight, which is the Nyath. The Nyaths are these eel-like creatures they're medium sized so they're about five feet long they have two arms that come out on either side they've got two fins one on top and bottom they've got this weird like cross shaped mouth it's like kind of a square cross section front and it's like a plus sign in the middle that sort of opens up it's like four triangles are the four lips Right. It's it's kind of hard to describe them because they're it, just It is so kind weird. of a very freaky picture. I agree. It almost looks like something if you remember the old like scary stories to tell in the dark books. It almost looks like it'd be at home in one of those. And it's got four eyes, one in the middle of each of those triangles around its mouth. And they evolved near that boundary line between the two layers of Bitopia. That's where they developed all their juju. Oh, and they fly by ignoring gravity. Just no, no, gravity doesn't count for us. We're bad. Yeah, just flat out ignore gravity. Gravity. Yeah, no, we don't like it. I'm ignoring that law. <laughs> and because of the way that they're arranged, they have no concept of up because okay. they are symmetrical. So it doesn't matter which side is up and which side is down. Whenever they cross that line, there's no disorientation for them. They just keep going. Okay. Again, these things are kind of creepy. They are at least susceptible to wind magic. So they can be kept at bay with something like a wind wall or a gust of wind. But the most terrifying ability that they have is something called a tail fling. So in second edition, they have a tail attack. If they hit, it deals 1d6 damage. But if their attack roll is four or more points beyond what they needed to hit your AC. You the get target yeeted. gets to go for a ride. They get yeeted. <laughs> the target gets subjected to a special localized form of the reverse gravity spell, and it chooses a random direction to be down. Oh, my. You roll a D12. On a one or a two, it goes to the left. On a three or a four, it goes to the right. Five or a six, it goes backwards. Seven or eight, it goes forwards. Nine or ten, it goes straight up. Eleven, it goes straight down. And 12, it goes into the victim's nearest companion. Ooh. And the victim falls 100 feet in the chosen direction or until they hit an object capable of stopping their fall. Ouch. And they take normal fall damage for whatever direction they went. That is brutal. Topping out at 10d6, you know, because it's 1d6 for every 10 feet. Or the really nasty thing a DM could do is depending on which direction they get thrown, if they get thrown past that gravity barrier... And so they maybe like go 90 feet, cross that gravity barrier, and now they've got like another 80 feet to fall to where the next layer of Vitopia would be. Yeah, because they do prowl, you know, sort of around that transition. Yeah. It's like, I'm safe. Nope. (laughs) So that particular chart is explicitly a guideline. The Nyaf use this method to hunt for food. And so they're not going to intentionally yeet someone in a way that they might lose a meal. 
So they're not going to knock them off a cliff. They're not going to knock them through like thick fog where they could lose visual on it. They want to know where it is at all times. Yeah, I mean, you don't you're not going to chuck your burger out the window. It's just that's a waste. So they also had a claw claw bite multi attack so that after they've yeeted you into a tree, then they can close in and get spicy. Oh, and because they weren't bad enough yet, they also hunt in packs. Oh, good times. Like wolf mentality packs. So they will target a single creature in a group and focus it down. So what they're going to do is they're going to grab the cleric and play the absolute worst game of keep away ever. (laughs) And they will also hound their prey. So they will chase it until it's too tired to run or fight. Oh, these things are vicious. I love them. Yeah. They prefer large animals like moose, deer, or cattle, but they will hunt humanoids if the opportunity presents itself. Just for the lulls. Just for the lulls. I like it. Yeah, these are kind of terrifying. I mean, they're terrifying to look at, and stat-wise, they are also terrifying. They're a little vicious. I like them. Yeah. And again, these are basically on par challenge-wise with, like, dire wolves. Yeah. So they, individually, they're probably like a CR3 monster. But with a pack. But with a pack, you know, you're going to have five or six of them at a time. That's going to ramp up real quick. You know, I wouldn't throw them against a party that's less than about fifth or sixth level. Personally. Yeah. And I mean, depending on too, on how the, the party's armored as well, because again, if you're fairly crunchy, then you're not likely to get fall victim to that tail throw. If right. you've got a bunch of, you know, wizards, sorcerers, maybe a druid or two, then... Everyone's going flying. <laughs> yeah, if you end up having some low AC players and they decide to make one of those guys into their personal chew toy, it's going to go bad. Yes. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of Bytopia Part 1. I'm really kind of surprised that this one didn't go two hours. <laughs> yeah, no, again, this is a fairly calm, peaceful realm. I mean, we've got some horrible creatures in here. We've got some conflict. But again, this is really just kind of a place to stop Catch your breath, do some reflecting, look at all the realms we visited, take some notes. It's a good place to wrap up. I like it. It is. It is. And it's small. Yeah. That's another big thing about it is that it's small. There's only two layers. I mean, you don't have the place to put a whole lot of stuff. And you constantly are talking about how the planes, a lot of the times, look like they ran out of things to put in the lower layers. Right. I mean, just looking at Bytopia, I would almost say that Bytopia is one where they're like, we need something to fill this slot. We've got something in all of the other slots. Yeah. We have to put something here. What in the world are we going to actually put here? Let's just make it nice. This this is the picnic. <laughs> Let's day. just this make is, it nice. Yeah, this is the park, you know, I'm just kind of, again, with the exception of all the gnomes, I like this place. This is like the interstate rest area. Yeah, absolutely. Of the plains. <laughs> you know, it's got that little half mile walking track. Yeah. That little area where you can go walk your dog so that they can use the bathroom. Little concession area with some snack machines and a bathroom. You, you can drink the water without going mad or dying. Yeah. Yeah, no, great. That, that's yeah. I mean, how many of the plants have we been like? Hey, yeah, don't drink the water here. I mean, here, go for it. It's nice and fresh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how many planes have there not been water? That that too. No water for you. All right. Well, that 
will do it for Bytopia tonight. So thank you everyone for listening tonight. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitch at under common taste. If you came here from TikTok, welcome. Yes. Our last episode on liches, apparently TikTok really likes liches because that short... <laughs> Most of our videos are somewhere in the 100 to 200 views range. Within the first two days that that short has been up, it's gotten 3,200 views. Liches, please. <laughs> More than half of the likes we have on our TikTok account are on that video. I think that tells us that maybe we should do some deep dives more into some specific types of monsters and creatures and how to use them. And as we wrap up our travel through the plains, this is something we have considered as well. And again, as we always say, by your interaction, we know what you want to hear more of. So this is definitely going to point us in that direction. So if there are things you want to hear, TikTok's a great way to message us, Twitter, hop on our Discord. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. So we are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. Our most recent write-up that we've put up is our Deep Siren write-up for the creature that we made with John from Valiant Fox Games. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed how that one came out. It was nice. Yes, it was. We got some spooky cryptid stuff going on that one. Ooh, buddy. (laughs) We're also on Discord. As James mentioned, you can find a link to the Discord in our show notes, and we would love for you to come over and chat with us. Absolutely. Again, if this is your first time finding our podcast, you can find us wherever you find your regular podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google, Spotify, TuneIn. Please, again, subscribe. Give us a like and review, as it does let us know what you want to hear more of. Next week, we are going to be jumping on the Stranger Things bandwagon. Based on your reaction to our Liches episode, we are going to be talking about the Lich. Yes. Uh, The one that everybody seems to really enjoy talking about. We're going to be doing an episode on Vecna. All right. I'm kind of looking forward to this one. Yeah, this is going to be a whole lot of fun. We're going to knock out Vecna. Well, maybe not actually knock out Vecna. That's... That's a little bit more difficult. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that I'm not really... uh, I don't think I'm prepared for. (laughs) We're not high enough level yet. No. Illidan Stormrage has the line for that one. You are not prepared. But we'll cover Vecna next week. And then the week after, we'll come back for part two of Bytopia. Perfect. We're also coming up on episode 100 of our podcast. So we're going to be starting to field questions for episode 100. I'm going to be reaching out to some of our friends on other podcasts and seeing if we can't maybe get a little bit of a roundtable going on and just get some questions together. And we just sit down and answer questions and have a grand old merry old time. Great. I'm also working on putting together a party for a one shot for our 100th episode, which is going to be parceled out and released over the month of September because after episode 100, we're taking the month of September off. And so I'm wanting to take some time and do a one shot and then we're going to parcel it up and have it as a scheduled releases through the month of September. So you're not going to miss us while we're gone. Right. We're needing some breaks. I'll actually be returning to classes to finish up a degree. And so we are going to have to to space things out a bit so I can catch some breath and get some work done. And Ian has some projects that he definitely needs to hunt down himself. So yeah, my wife and I are taking our daughter to Disney. So, oh yeah, there you go. That's what we're doing in September. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, thanks for listening. Stay safe. 
and we'll see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.